0: Good morning, ABC Church. Good to have you with us today. have a few announcements for you. For you ladies, the Atascadero Ladies Conference is going to be next Saturday, May 15th at 9 a.m. I invite you to come out to that for a great time. We always hear great reports of that particular conference, and we're happy to be able to host it at our church this year. Uh, the weekend after that, men, there is a men's breakfast at 7 a.m. And so men, we in, invite you to come. We're gonna be talking about your faith and your job. There's gonna be a panel of guys gonna be discussing that and how you can live out your faith in Jesus Christ where you work even. And uh, that's always a real challenge. And so I think it's gonna be a very important topic for us to to be able to focus on. And then finally, I just wanna say to you mothers, happy Mother's Day. Uh, You are the champions and we appreciate you so much. If you're here at at the church, Sunday morning, um, we're happy to have some fun with the moms as well. Some of the categories we give out flowers for. Uh, for all of the moms, you get a chocolate this year. It turns out that we did a vote last year. Would you rather have a flower or chocolate? And chocolate won out overwhelmingly. So we uh, invite you to come as well. Again, I want to say to you, happy Mother's Day. I hope you have a great week and God bless you. Well, welcome to ABC, thanks so much for joining
1: us. Um, Before we get started, I wanted to mention, in a couple weeks, we're gonna celebrate Pentecost Sunday as a church. Uh, Pentecost Sunday is the the day that the Holy Spirit came on the original birth of the church in Acts chapter two, and so we celebrate that on the church calendar. Um, We're gonna do so at ABC by having baptisms in the service. If you're interested at all in being baptized, um, please give us a call at the church office or you can email laurie at abcchurch.org. Um, it's gonna be a great day of celebration. And then following the service, we're gonna have a Sunday lunch, a kind of a church family lunch right after church out there in the courtyard. It's gonna be fantastic. So hope you join us Sunday, May 23rd. We're gonna jump right in here to our series in Philippians. You know, there's a passage in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus goes to a dinner party, and uh, it's kind of like a Sunday lunch or a Sunday dinner, and it it turns out to be kind of the who's who of Jerusalem. There's uh, religious leaders, a religious elite. In fact, it's at one of the top religious leaders' house, and uh, it's the epitome of pretense and posturing and uh, people taking Sunday best to a whole new level. And Jesus is people watching, and I love that. I love people watching, I'm sure you do too. And he's just sort of observing what's taking place at this, at this meal. And he's watching something very interesting about how they're choosing their seats. And I imagine him standing sort of back off in the corner just reflective as people are moving around the room and it's nearing the time to eat and people start to choose their seats very strategically. Have you ever seen that happen? You know, when you go to like a birthday dinner for a friend, um, people kind of end up making their way toward the center of a really long (laughs) rectangular table because no one wants to be down at the end where you can't hear any conversation. So these people are making their seat choices very specifically and very strategically, and he's watching this take place, and finally he speaks up. And this is what he says, well, paraphrased. He says, excuse me, when you go to a wedding party don't sit closest to the head table in hopes that you'll be caught in the photos or have first dibs on the hors d'oeuvres because inevitably the wedding coordinator is going to come and let you know that this table has been reserved for family and they'll ask you to leave and then embarrassed you'll need to stand up and go find out that the only seat left in the house is at the kids table. And as Jesus finishes this story describing what's actually taking place at this dinner party, he finishes with this famous line in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus throws down this statement of the upside-down kingdom, the backwards way of thinking, If you want to be great, you need to become small. If you want to be noticed, you need to try to be inconspicuous. If you want your position to be full, then you must become empty. For he who humbles himself will be exalted. Recognition eludes those who demand it is basically what Jesus is saying. And Paul reinforces this concept in his letter to the Philippian church. He's trying to reinforce the idea that if you want to become great, you need to become small. That if you humble yourself, then ultimately God will exalt you. And he uses Jesus as the very model, the representation. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read just the first half of this passage. We'll pick up the second half when we get near the end this morning. But I want to just uh, show you how Paul ties a bow on the conversation that we've had for the last two weeks. Um, Two weeks ago, Jake shared a message on unity and uh, talked about... Uh, This concept of loving in the process of interacting with others on varying degrees of uh, disagreement. And then last week, um, we had a message that was focused on putting others first in love. And Gerald Haugen actually shared that message. If you missed it, by the way, you should go back and watch it. Um, Gerald is our new discipleship pastor at ABC. Um, he'll be joining our team in July here. So go back and take a look at that just as a side note. But those two messages ultimately culminate with this concept that Paul's presenting as Jesus, the model for how to be other centered, how to provide unity, and ultimately how to be humble. And so in verse five, he says this Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One of the most famous passages of Philippians is this chapter 2 passage where Paul presents this perfect image, this picture of Christ and sets it as the example for us to follow and says, if you want to have this mind, if you want to be unified, if you're experiencing joy from the fellowship of Christ, then do this. Be other-centered. And then he says, do it just like Jesus. And this is how Jesus did it. He said, Jesus emptied himself. Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning with God, present at creation, who all things were made through, and in him was the life and the light of men became flesh and emptied himself to dwell among us. And Paul writes, do it like Jesus does. Such a great clear picture for how we're to live. Very practical. And I want to walk through what jesus is doing here in this passage what paul's describing jesus is doing is he empties himself of position of posture of pride and of power and so i want to walk through these verses and just see a demonstration of how he empties himself and how we could hopefully follow that first thing in verse six who though he was in the form of god did not account did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped and jesus became empty of position his royal throne position in heaven. He voluntarily stepped down to enter into humanity, giving up the position of authority and supremacy and glory in heaven so that he could join us on this earth. Now, this is a challenging concept because we need to understand that Christ didn't surrender his deity. So he was still God. He didn't give up the nature of God. But it was a voluntary restriction that he placed on himself as a human in order to become a man. It's called the hypostatic union. And, and by the way, Paul doesn't intend for this passage, I don't believe, to be uh, sort of doctrinal in terms of presenting this idea of the deity of Christ versus the humanity of Christ. That takes place in other parts of Scripture, uh, both in Romans and in Hebrews and some other places. I really think, think this is a, a side note He's setting up Christ as the perfect example and he's just mentioning um, in the process of Christ coming down from heaven for the purpose of us understanding his humility in that. Um, But we do glean some helpful doctrine from this as we see that he stepped down, gave up his position in heaven to take on a lowly position on earth. I think it's, it's helpful when we even look at this word empty, uh, it says in verse 7, uh, emptying himself. Um, and I think that's, that's a helpful idea. It's this word kenosis that um, really is the emptying of his power. It, it wasn't so much emptying of deity but power. And again, it was this, um, this willingness to release the God attributes so the, the, the abilities of God in order to become a restricted man. Now, here's the thing I think it's helpful in that process, and I don't want to, to get too lost in the weeds on this, but I think it's helpful for us just to understand that all of the amazing things Jesus Christ did on earth, the miracles and um, the, the work, the supernatural work that he did, we can tend to think that, um, well, he was God, so of course he did that. Well, yes, but he was still man and had the restriction and limitation of man because he had voluntarily um, stepped into that position. So when Jesus Christ does supernatural things on earth, he's doing it through the very power of the Holy Spirit that you and I have access to. Now, I know that's sort of hard to get your mind around, and, um, and, and yet you, know, you could argue that, well, Jesus still had all the attributes and deity of God. Well, that's true, but he had all of the attributes of man and the restriction of man. The difference between Jesus and you and I is that he was sinless. And so because of uh, the fact that he didn't have any sin, he was uninhibited. The work of the Spirit was uninhibited through him to do all of these supernatural things that that he did. In fact, it's evidence when he sends his disciples out two by two and they start performing the same kind of miracles that Jesus was doing by the work of the Spirit, uninhibited because of their submission to the Spirit and their, their lack of sin. And then when we step into a, a, a point where uh, we embrace the flesh and where we sin, we start to limit that Spirit. I don't want to you know spend too much time on it, but I think it's just helpful to understand Jesus gave up this position. He gave up Uh, In many ways, his right as king in order to come down to this earth. He humbled himself, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In verse 7, it says, but he made himself nothing. Being born in the likeness of men, he emptied himself of posture. So not only position, his enthroned, glorified position in heaven, but also his posture. When I think of a leader, uh, maybe you could say king or ruler or whatever you want to say, but I think of someone who's a dignified leader, I think of posture. You think of somebody who has a composed, um, even cadence about them with a posture of a leader, and that's what the world has sort of defined us as follow worthy. But Jesus didn't look like a leader, if you think about it. I mean, let's just consider for a second the Christmas story. Go back to Luke chapter 2 and remember that it said, But for unto us a child is born this day in the city of David, and you will find him lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was a baby, as undignified as you could possibly imagine. In, in the lack of posture, leadership posture, Jesus came as a baby. I know a thing or two about swaddling. I bet you two too, if you've had kids recently. I love those kind of stretchy blankets, you know, that you can get really tight, and so you go around one arm, you know, and then you go around the other and just cram it in there, like make it super tight. But you know why you swaddle a baby? To get him to stop screaming. That's why you swaddle a baby. And, And in our case, like my daughter, our oldest, she just loved it. You swaddle her, get that thing really tight, and she would just... Calm down and chill out and stop crying and screaming. Jesus was a crying, screaming baby. There's no posture about that. There's no leadership posture. There's no dignified position that we're looking at when we see this messy baby who had to be swaddled to get him to stop screaming, it's like uh, if you would have known he was king or Messiah, you'd have said, "Compose yourself, Jesus. Be a man." You know, I mean, it's that idea that there should be uh, some kind of togetherness in in leadership, and yet he emptied himself of that posture. And then verse eight, saying, "Taking on the very nature of a leader or of a servant," excuse me, taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself, becoming empty of pride. It's interesting, you know, that Jesus would say in Luke chapter 14 that he who humbles himself will be exalted and then Paul follows it by saying Jesus humbled himself and it makes me ask and consider what does that mean to humble yourself? I think one of the reasons it's so confusing for us is we have so many poor examples. There's so many poor references in our culture of people with false humility or um, humbling yourself means, you know, dropping your head a little bit or trying to present yourself as not as good as you think you really are Um, or, you know, even maybe some self-deprecating kind of language that maybe you don't really believe it, uh, but you're going to say it because it's the appropriate thing to say. And so we have all these versions of humility that just aren't biblical. And so I ask myself, what in the world... Does it mean to humble yourself? And how did Jesus humble himself? And there's a clue here as we process through this and and understanding what Jesus was all about. And I was reading one of the most humbling scenes in scripture where Jesus takes the towel and the basin around his waist and he starts to wash the feet of his disciple. And I realized that's humbling himself, right? Doing an act of service. But even then, there, you know, there, there wasn't a clear picture of, well, how do you do that other than just serving? And, and what if you didn't have a, a pure motive in that? Is that really humility? And I asked all those questions, and then I came upon this clue. And this is so helpful. I want to read it for you guys, because in John chapter 13, uh, right before Jesus starts this whole process of washing his disciples' feet, John comments on something that was true about Jesus. I think it's really helpful for us. I, w- I want you to catch this in 13 uh, verse 3. John says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, picked up the towel, picked up the basin, and so forth. And the story plays out. John says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, knowing what power he had, knowing where he came from and where he was going, served out of that. Knowledge And I realized that the humbling himself concept comes out of a pure confidence. If you want to be humble, you have to be confident, which sounds a little bit backwards. But you realize that the security that Jesus had, both in his identity and in his purpose, in, in who he was and in where he was going, allowed for him to demonstrate authentic and genuine humility. Uh, Just consider for a second some of the most proud or arrogant people that you know. Don't you think that stems from insecurity? When you see someone just haughty in their language or just posturing and pretentious in the way that they carry themselves or present themselves, don't you think that that's because they're really deep down insecure in who they are and so they're trying to present themselves as something that they hope they are but maybe don't feel they are? Isn't true humility uh, coming, stemming from confidence that if Jesus knew this is who I am, this is what the Father has given me, this is where I came from, and this is where I'm going, I'm sure of that. So what I have to, to do here is prove nothing. Jesus didn't have anything to try to grab onto. In fact, Paul uses that language grabbing or grasping. He didn't have to grasp or anything because he knew exactly where he was going and who he was. What if we were so confident, so sure of who we are and where we were going that we didn't have to sort of throw our identity cards around, trying to create an image of something that we hope others will believe about us. He who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a tough concept to think about humbling yourself because there's so many bad examples. But here's a clear good example. John chapter 13, I think Jesus humbles himself because he's so sure of who he is and where he's going, that it wasn't a problem to serve. It wasn't a problem to be insulted. We're going to look at that as he goes to the cross. It wasn't a problem to to allow for people to do wrong to you because he said, you know what, I know where I'm going. I know who I am and I know where I'm going. And the more confident we are, the the more that identity crisis fades, I believe the more humble we can be amidst others as we function in this um, kind of messy life. Finally, we see that Jesus was empty of power, becoming obedient to death. Go back with me to Philippians chapter 2 verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Luke chapter 24 says that as the people stood by watching and the rulers were scoffing at him saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. Jesus, if you're really God, why don't you come down from the cross? And they scoffed at him and they mocked him and they made fun of him. Jesus emptied himself of power and he put, he allowed for him to be put on the cross and he stayed on the cross, not, uh, not exerting his own deistic power to remove himself from the cross, but submitting himself to death, even death on a cross. And he became empty of power, endured the mocking of, if you're really God, then do something. What do you think is harder if if you have the power to do something and yet you don't do it? Or if you didn't have the power at all? What would be the harder road? Jesus had the power to do something, and yet he didn't. Submitted himself, emptied himself, allowed for this to play out. As he knew the Father had planned and intended, being poured out as an offering, abused and mocked, slaughtered at the hands of prideful men, Jesus Christ, the God man, submitted himself to death. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Now I want to conclude with the final piece of, of this passage, uh, verses 9 through 11, which really becomes the climactic moment. And so Paul's building up in this letter. He's writing, if you've got any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in participation, be unified and make my joy complete. Being of the same mind, be of the same love, put others first. And he's saying, do it like Jesus did because look at what Jesus did. He emptied himself and he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he came down from heaven and he became a man and he's going through this whole Um, sort of prescription for how we should live amongst others using Jesus as the ultimate example and he ends and he closes with like this mic dropping statement that he says in verse 9 therefore God has highly exalted him He says, Jesus emptied himself and he humbled himself and let's try to do it like Jesus did and he didn't consider equality with God so many grasp and guess what's going to happen because he did that? He's going to be exalted and he's going to be lifted high above every other name and at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and everyone on earth will proclaim that Jesus is Lord. He's going to win. He's going to be victor. He will be exalted, make no mistake. And Paul ends with this ramp up language is so helpful because he's painting the picture of the result of true submission true humility true surrender that if you can let go as he talks about uh, not considering equality with god somebody grasp, something to hold on to to pinch tight if you could let go of that Let go of that posture and that position, that desire to have power. If you could let go of it for long enough to let God work, to let God do his plan, to let him accomplish it, you will in fact be exalted. Here's the crazy thing. I want you to hear this this morning, that God will exalt Christ and he will exalt you. That we will in fact, as Christians, as followers of God, be exalted with Christ. God will do the exalting for Christ and for us. And there's countless examples in Scripture of that taking place. One of them being 1 Peter 5, verse 6. If you humble yourself in due time, God will exalt you. If you humble yourself, James chapter 4, God will exalt you. That God is planning to exalt you in your humility as he's exalting Christ in his demonstration of humility. That we're co-heirs with Christ. That, that we... We get to experience the glory of heaven. That we get to experience the exaltation of Christ alongside of him if we follow this example. It's, it's really a, a climactic moment for Christ that he catches us up in with him. That, that we get invited to the party, so to speak. And we get to be there with him. And so we realize that as Christ didn't clinch for power or position, as he he didn't claw, he didn't hang on for pride. We need to transition our clawing to confidence, to become so certain of our identity and destiny as children of God that we don't have to grab for commendation. They don't have to seize our position or our authority or try to prove to others that we have it together, that we're worthy of some kind of honor, That we've got some kind of composure and posture as good leaders or good Christians, good parents, good spouses. No, just be confident of of your identity in Christ, that you are in fact a child of God, a child of the King, a co-heir with Christ. That if you embrace a faith and you confess and you repent and you are caught up in this story of God, you have exaltation waiting. I love the way that uh, Spurgeon describes this concept of Jesus. He says, he has a throne, but he is not content with having a throne to himself. On his right hand, there must be his queen dressed in fine gold. He will not be glorified without his bride. Look up, believer, to Jesus now. Let the eye of your faith see him with many crowns upon his head, and remember that one day you will be like him. When you will see him as he is, you shall not be as great as he, you will not be as divine as he, but you will in some measure share the same honors and enjoy the same happiness and the same dignity that he possesses. Now listen to the charge from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Be content to live unknown for a little while and walk your weary way through the fields of poverty or up the hills of affliction, for soon enough you will reign with Christ. For he has made us a kingdom of priests to our God, and we shall reign forever ever such a beautiful picture that Christ will be seated on his throne but not content to be without his Queen God will exalt Jesus God will exalt you and me it's a powerful picture when Christ is emptied of position posture pride power he becomes exalted who humbles himself will be exalted. I, I want to just encourage you for a moment. There's there's something very intangible about uh, humility. It's kind of hard to grab onto. And if if you're hearing this and you're kind of processing, goes, yeah, I, I get. You know, there's a An idea or a concept of sort of just believing something about me. And if I believe something about me, then then it'll give me a different trajectory. And and that's sort of philosophical and, you know, you could even say sort of psychoanalytical. And yet I think the reality comes down to truth. That if you don't have enough truth or you don't have truth, period, or you're not um, chewing, digesting, consuming truth that you'll never have that identity in strong enough form and shape to begin causing you confidence and true humility. In other words, I think you need to hear enough truth, you need to believe enough truth about who you are and who Jesus is in order to gain this degree of confidence and be able to express Genuine humility to be able to humble yourself, so to speak, would require you to, to be so founded, so grounded in your own identity based on the truth of the Word of God that you could function in that level of identity. And I just want to encourage you, um, if you know this, this one short sermon is not enough, obviously, uh, this is not. Um, comprehensive enough to be able to help you shape your identity in such a way that'll give you enough confidence to live out your life in humility the way Jesus does in, in John 13. I get that. I understand that. But I want to give you a starting point, and I encourage you to start to lean in, to process through truth. And if if you haven't spent time asking the question, who am I really? Who is my identity? What what am I called before God? What what am I supposed to do in, in this idea? If you've never processed through that, I want you just to really take some time and drill down on that a little bit as it relates to your understanding of, of who you are in Christ, because there, the Bible is so clear on that that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we were called according to His purpose that he has set us apart and sanctified us, that those who follow Christ, that have made a commitment in Christ, that have placed their faith in him for our future salvation, for our future uh, glorification, when we'll be with him in heaven someday, if we've embraced that reality, then we have a clear identity. I would start just even in Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about the adoption. That you could understand what it means to be adopted as a daughter or a son of the king of the universe. And then continue on in Ephesians and start to realize that what God has for us is so far beyond what we could ever grab onto in this life. That that we kind of throw our identity around in various circles and various circumstances trying to present the version of ourself that we think will be most accepted, that we will be, that will be most successful, um, that will present the, the best or the cleanest on paper. And yet what God is saying is throw that out the window, please. It just doesn't matter. Be the version of yourself that God has called you to. It really comes down to identity. and I know this is a, a humility message this line that we keep repeating, he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's true, it's it's words right out of um, out of Luke chapter 14 and Paul echoes of these words in Philippians chapter 2 that, that he who humbles himself will be exalted. And in fact, Christ will be exalted and we will be exalted with him. But how does that translate into today? I think for us today, it gives us a great degree of confidence that we will be exalted, that we should be firm and fixed and founded in that reality and allow for the humility to be Birthed out of a confidence in who we are. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm I'm guilty of believing things that are not true of me, of trying to present as something other than who you've called me to be. And I'm guilty of posturing, of presenting something that's not necessarily true, guilty of pride, trying to prove something of who I am, and I'm sorry. And I really believe what you're calling us to is to let go of that. To stop trying to present, but to be confident. rest in the fact that we are exactly who you made us to be and called us to be in our identity as co-heirs, as the bride of Christ that will sit next to you as your queen is what you've called us to. And if we're sure of that, it'll allow us to demonstrate far more humility in our interactions today. Make that clear for us, God. Ground our identity in you. May we know you more and know ourselves more as a result. In your precious name I pray, amen.